From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. There's a popular proverb that usually defines the word Ubuntu, and the proverb is, I am because we are, and because we are, I am. Human beings are in their root and in their bones interdependent. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. He's also the President and CEO of Peace Battle Institute. He's the author of 11 books, including Reconciliation, the Ubuntu Theology of Desmond Tutu, and he focuses his ministry on nonviolence, Christian reconciliation, human spirituality, and Ubuntu, the African worldview of community. Professor Battle lived in residence with Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa for two years and was ordained a priest in South Africa by Tutu in 1993. Today we're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. Well, Professor Michael Battle, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to begin for listeners who may not have any familiarity about the subject of your book, if you could take just a few moments and briefly, and I realize that this is a lot to ask, but to briefly give an overview of who Desmond Tutu is and what he meant both for South Africa and the world. Desmond Tutu became famous in 1984 because he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, He is an Anglican archbishop, retired emeritus. He was known of breaking quite a few barriers. First, as you you can imagine, being the archbishop of an historically white European church body, the third largest in Christendom, the Anglican Communion. But also he became, I think, a, a wonderful spiritual authority as chairing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission which for the church is a wonderful blessing because oftentimes in in the church we are seen as part of the problem rather than the solution. But Archbishop Tutu doesn't really get the credit he deserves in terms of leading a political movement for restorative justice without removing his identity as a spiritual leader. So it's those aspects, I think, that really show the power of his character and the reason we need to remember and learn from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Well, you mentioned that he was an archbishop in South Africa. And again, some of my listeners are on the younger side, and they may not recognize or realize some of the long 
and I'm going to use the word demonic history that goes into that country and, and what was going on there. Could you let our listeners know a little bit about what the history of South Africa was that Desmond Tutu was born into and struggled within? South Africa is similar in a sense to the horrible history of racism for the United States, with one exception. In South Africa, there was no constitution that at, at least allegedly said there was equality for all people. South Africa was different also in the sense that there was a conscious way to bring spirituality into or, or religion to justify the systemic institutional racism. It was called apartheid. And apartheid was a way that the government from the, the party of the Afrikaner, who were whites, who were descendants from Europe, especially from the Netherlands, the Dutch, they understood themselves as having a mission from God. The language they used was to be a trustee, a steward of God's creation to be in control of this land that they were discovering called South Africa. And so they developed a whole government based on that, and they brought in their own religion to justify the government called apartheid. And apartheid in many ways means to be holy, to be set apart. But apartheid was really one of the most uh, horrendous, racist, legislative ways to separate people. So Desmond Tutu was born in the midst of that, and he became a spiritual leader to try to use the language of Ubuntu, which I'll get into with you shortly, and that's the language of what it means to truly be human, and it's not truly human to be divided. So Desmond Tutu was born in a very similar and yet different context of institutional racism. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I just want to remind listeners that we're speaking with Professor Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. He's also President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. We're talking today about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. Well, you mentioned this doctrine of apartheid, and you say that it, it talks about being set apart and that it comes from the Dutch church in many ways. And as I was reading your book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor, one of the things that struck me again and again, I hadn't expected that it was a theological construct as well as a political construct. And it it almost seemed like they were taking this word apartheid and using it the way that in my seminary training, we used the word election, you know, God's chosen people. Now, when I make that connection, is that too broad a stretch or is that literally the way that those who ran the apartheid government in South Africa thought of themselves as the elect, the set apart? David, you're right on. Of course, as you know, for the Dutch Reform, they come from a tradition in which providence and election are, are essential beliefs or tenets in the theology of the Reformed. You know, for us in the U.S., we know about Presbyterians. Well, Presbyterians also have the same thing. They come from that same branch of the Reformation called the Reformed Church. And also the architects of this government of setting apart, you know, Afrikaners, they were trained. The D.F. Milan became one of the first presidents of the National Party 
which was the party of the Afrikaner, they went to seminary and they were trained theologically and they were using terms like apartheid intentionally to justify what they were doing for their institutional racism. And so when we say that Desmond Tutu rose to political prominence in South Africa as a clergy person, as a member of the church, he was positioned in a very interesting way to stand against that theological tradition of apartheid. No, it's very true. And I think the reason why Archbishop Tutu became so essential to the the movement for not a cheap kind of reconciliation, but a substantive reconciliation, is because he understood both the politics and the religious impetus um, behind apartheid. So in other words, you really could not just address the apartheid as a political system. You had to address it as a spiritual system as well. And in addressing it as a spiritual system, you mentioned that the Dutch Reformed Church comes out of a Calvinist tradition. They believe in a very strong doctrine of election. But you mentioned that Desmond Tutu is an archbishop in the Anglican communion. He's a member of the Church of England in its wider diaspora. Does the Church of England believe the same kind of things about election that the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa believes, or do they have a a nuanced or different sort of approach to this doctrine of election? It's a good question. I I think you could pretty much draw the lines of the differences as well as the similarities based on church history. So much of what was being played out was a scramble for Africa by the Europeans. So you had both the English and you had the Dutch who were, and you also had other Europeans who were scrambling for Africa. But those two in particular were also at each other's throats trying to claim this land. So the English are not particularly innocent themselves. But in terms of theological influence, you know, Calvin's way of understanding cosmology and grace and his leadership in the Reformation of the Church, you know, compared to, you know, the English Reformation was not the same. For the In the Anglican tradition, there was much more of what would be called subsidiarity, the way of understanding parishes and local influence and authority as a parish priest. So it wasn't really written large in that sort of macro scale that the Reformed Church had. And the English sort of Reformation was a little more organic than this sort of macro election system that Calvin, even though it's a little unfair to Calvin to recognize what was done in his name, But it became known as this sort of more uniform, macro way of understanding the the Reformed Church. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, both the Church of England and the countries that were involved in the United Kingdom and the countries that were part of the Calvinist theological movements, what I'm hearing you saying is that they were both involved in colonialism. So it's not that one was colonialist and the other was anti-colonialist, but In their colonialism, they left sort of churches in the wake of the colonization. And in this particular case, the theology of the Anglican communion that Desmond Tutu was brought into allowed him some room to maneuver around this doctrine of separation, this doctrine of apartheid, that maybe he wouldn't have had if he had come into the Dutch Reformed tradition. So let's look a little bit about how 
Desmond Tutu came to be part of the Church of England. Was he born into the Church of England or did he join it? And if he joined it, why? So he was born and he was more familiar with the Methodist Church. His father, you know, worked in a, a Methodist school. His mom had that sort of affinity as well. As he grew, and this is, David, what I think is the key aspect to my forthcoming spiritual biography on Tutu, as well as what our conversation is in terms of the differences of how religion was used in colonialism. For Tutu, he met a monk, a Christian monk, called his name was Trevor Huddleston. And in Anglicanism, similar to the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, they have this way of understanding monastic societies. And one of the things that I'm you know, proud of as a Black person is the monastic movement began in Africa with St. Anthony. And so this monastic tradition um, produced these kinds of progressive, fearless monks who took on what they saw as evil, you know, perpetrated as political systems. And so Trevor Huddleston recognized Desmond Tutu as, as pretty much a child. And Tutu was sickly as a child, especially, you know, battling muscular things, tuberculosis, you know, and other sort of diseases back then that they didn't have the kind of medical care to take care of. And Trevor Huddleston did pastoral care and visited Tutu when he was a child. And I think it was that point on that uh, Tutu imprinted upon this kind of monk, this monastic monk. And that's the sort of argument that I'm making to say that I think Archbishop Tutu becomes a saint. We'll get into this as our program continues, but for right now, we're going to step away and take a break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Professor Michael Battle. He teaches at General Theological Seminary in New York and is the director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary. We're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor, and we'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today 
is Professor Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. He's also President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. He's the author of 11 books, including Reconciliation, the Ubuntu Theology of Desmond Tutu. Today we're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the structure of your book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor, because there are many ways to organize a biography, and probably the one that is most familiar to people would be chronological, where you start at birth and you go to the point where a person is, or if it's a posthumous biography, you go to the point of a person's death and maybe talk a little bit about their influence in the years that followed their death. But you've chosen a different path with this biography. Instead of organizing it chronologically, you've chosen to organize it thematically around the question of sainthood and the path of sainthood in three moves, purgation, illumination, and union. I'd love to find out a little bit more about what it was that made you choose this sort of organizing principle for the biography. Then I would like to get into each of these aspects individually and ask you a few more questions about them. You know, David, one of the things that many people do not know, especially the histories around Christianity, is there is a deep tradition called Christian mysticism. You know, around the 4th century, 5th century, Christianity became institutionalized because of Emperor Constantine. But all along the way, there were figures who were marginalized, figures who went out into the desert to pray, figures known to be mystics. And the Christian mystics were really important. And there was one in particular who I'm sure he didn't really like the name that he received. His name was Pseudo-Dionysius. And this is what he came to be known as. And no one wants a name like Pseudo, but Dionysius the Areopagite, became known as Pseudo-Dionysius. And he is the one who formed language around Christian mysticism. And so his language is threefold. The language starts with purgation. Anyone who is trying to have union with God needs to be purged. And that purgation usually is around sinfulness, dropping scales from your eyes so that you can actually have an opportunity to see God. But first, it starts with purgation. And once those scales fall from your eyes and once you are purged, you have illumination, which is the second stage. And in illumination, you have an epiphany. You have ways of seeing what you have not seen before which is a great namesake for your radio show. And then after illumination is the third mystical stage called union. And that's when you are able to do something impossible. And that's to be fully in the presence of God without being consumed or burned up or how the creature can be totally direct with the creator. So purgation, illumination, and union. And so this is the, the mystical methodology that I applied to Desmond Tutu's life. I didn't really want to do um, a chronology because uh, John Allen 
did a biography on Archbishop Tutu that really provides really good chronology. And I spoke with John about my own biography, and we both agreed that a whole lot of work needed to be done on Archbishop Tutu's spiritual life. So that's the reason that I have the methodology of this biography that I do. Well, let me dig in then to each of these in their turn, and we'll start with the first, purgation. And when I use that word purgation, listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with that technical term may understand it better by its cognate, something like a purging or an emptying of a vessel to flush it out. And as I'm thinking about this notion of purgation, one of the things that struck me again and again was that a person who is born into a culture like South Africa's apartheid culture, they get a certain narrative about the way the world is structured and a certain narrative about themselves. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this approach that you took in your spiritual biography of Desmond Tutu was you helped me to see the ways in which Desmond Tutu had to unlearn what everything around him had taught him there in South Africa. He had to purge himself of narratives about both his society and what it allowed him to do, and himself and what he thought that he could do. And I appreciate that so much, but as I'm picking up on those threads of purgation, am I overplaying the hand? Is it that kind of mental flushing in addition to everything else? Is it that political, having to lose those kinds of ideologies? Or was this simply, in your opinion, a spiritual and elevated act? that Desmond Tutu went through in his purgation. Yeah, I think, and I tried to say early on in the book that you really cannot separate spirituality and politics, just like religion and politics. Archbishop Tutu's life is a representation. You can't really separate those two. I think you're right. I think the purgation aspect is allowing Tutu to be an amphibian, it's, it's freeing him up to live in a lot of worlds that he should not be living in. It's a freedom that allows him to move to that second stage, but it's a painful stage because all of us want stability. All of us want to live according to the rules and the rules of Archbishop Tutu's day when he was growing up is to abide by apartheid laws. And, you know, he would have been no exception. You know, all of us want to keep our anxieties down and go along with the flow. But he was not able to do that. He was purged in a way in which he had to go outside and live in very uncomfortable water and live in uncomfortable circumstances that would bring bring negative attention to him. So in other words, he was becoming associated with these spiritual monks who were already known to be a nemesis to apartheid society. And also the institutional church was being changed and couldn't just be comfortable in its own laissez-faire way of approaching apartheid. So the institutional church in many ways, was being purged as well. The contemporaries of Archbishop Desmond Tutu were people like Stephen Biko and Nelson Mandela, and they were victims of state violence. Stephen Biko was killed by state violence. I believe Nelson Mandela, Nelson yeah. Mandela was, was imprisoned for 27 years. D- did 
Desmond Tutu suffer those same kind of overt actions of state violence as part of his purgation? Or was his place in the church able to make him a little bit more safe from those kind of direct threats from the state? Yeah, I mean, I tell some some narratives of the direct danger that um, Archbishop Tutu lived through. Some of the threats were not only from the white Afrikaner side, you know, some of the threats occurred as Archbishop Tutu would go into some of the black townships to save some of the um, black folks who were accused of being a traitor and which they would be necklaced. I don't know if you know about necklacing, but it was a way in which you publicly shamed and killed anyone who was considered being in cahoots with the apartheid government. And Tutu put his body on top of somebody, a Black youth, that they were about to kill to say that none of us should be living in a world in which violence is the answer. So that's just one example. There are others in which I I had the wonderful opportunity. What I'm about to, to say is not wonderful, but to be able to live with Archbishop Tutu in 1993 and 1994. And I de facto served as his chaplain as I was writing my PhD dissertation on him. And so my, my, the chaplain's quarter was sort of the receptionist. So I, I would receive phone calls. And the phone calls I received were like a horror movie, just listening to the threats, the, the vitriol, the evil, the, it wasn't just the things they were saying, it was the tone of voice. So I also experienced just the the evil that was targeted to Tutu. And, you know, in many ways, he's surprised he's still alive. Um, he's 89, that's the time of our interview now. And God willing, he will be 90, year, 90 years old, October 7th of this year. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York, and he's President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. Today we're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. Well, you mentioned the very present violence that was the world that Desmond Tutu was born into and was raised in. And we've been talking about the first step in this mystical journey of purgation, of turning away from the worldliness that is offered to you and choosing a different path. And that brings us naturally then to this question of illumination. So a person who is raised in violence is understandably reflexively drawn to violence. But here, Desmond Tutu chooses instead a different path. And this brings up this question of illumination, because very clearly Desmond Tutu articulates and embraces a doctrine of love and a doctrine of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'd love to hear more about some of what it was that brought him to that state of illumination, where he was able to look at the violence that the world was offering to him and to say no. Yeah, sure. So, I think moving from that purgative stage, which was ex- was extremely uncomfortable and, you know, no one in their right mind would choose it to be uncomfortable. I think purgation included uh, something that I'm going to say l- that led directly to illumination, and that was travel. And I think you can see this in many major figures throughout history who have done 
you know, monumental things, not only for the country, but for humanity. For example, you can look at Gandhi's journey to study in London to be a lawyer, or the whole narrative around Moses, you know, you know, leaving his home as an orphan and going to a strange land. Tutu was no exception to that. He also studied in London and in, in England. And I think that frame of reference really was purgative because you know, any of us who live in a strange land and are away from what is comfortable to us will find purgation to be real. And from that, his epiphanies also occurred. He had more of a familiarity of where those monks came from, for example. He lived in their world. You know, he was an African in those times and understanding himself as an African in England. And he also was, you know, seeing his life in the middle of the headquarters of this British empire that tried to take over the world. I think in those experiences of travel, that gave him a way of seeing the world differently. And so he could also see the weaknesses of those in power. But I think ultimately the illumination, I want to say, in terms of the spiritual life for Tutu was exactly what you were pointing to, David, and that is violence. That basically any time that we are trying to solve answers violently, we are setting ourselves back. We are not anywhere closer to any solutions when we're trying to use violent means. And for Tutu, who wasn't, I don't think you could define him as a pacifist. I think he's more on the sort of spectrum of just war. But I think he is closer in the continuum to being a pacifist. But his way of understanding Ubuntu is that to be a true human being, we can't live based on this premise of destroying the other, killing the other, depersonalizing the other, um, as they teach in criminal justice theory, that in order to kill someone, you have to first depersonalize that person. Tutu's epiphany was early on in, in terms of seeing that no solution comes through the systemic ways in which we depersonalize our enemies so as to destroy them or to keep them in apartheid or to separate them in marginalized ways to take advantage of them. And I think that's the beauty of Tutu's life. He could bring this spirituality that he learns from Jesus, this way of trying to solve seemingly intractable problems through basically understanding any solution is going to have to be beyond violent means. You've used this term a couple of times in our conversation, Ubuntu, and this might be a good point to make sure that our listeners are following us in the use of this term. So when you're using this word Ubuntu, what is its, I, I hesitate to say its simple definition, but let's start there and then we'll begin to look at how it plays out in Desmond Tutu's life. Yeah, there's a popular proverb that usually defines the word Ubuntu. And the proverb is, I am because we are, and because we are, I am. So it's a proverb pointing to the definition of Ubuntu in that 
human beings are in their root and in their bones interdependent. We are interdependent, not just human beings. Creation is based on interdependency. Ubuntu is a Bantu word that comes from the Bantu languages of sub-Saharan Africa. And Ubuntu literally means human, to be human. But what's important in those Bantu languages is the connotation that most of us in you know, the global north miss out on. And that is to be human is to understand and know the reference point is from someone else. We know we are human in relationship to someone else. And so from the European Enlightenment, the proverb is not, I am because we are, but the proverb from the European Enlightenment is, I think, therefore I am. And so the agency is in the individualism. And so that's, to me, Ubuntu is really a, a reference point, an African reference point that our westernized world is in deep need of. As we're moving towards our next break, what strikes me about that definition of Ubuntu, I am because we are, how different that is from the fundamental doctrine of apartheid. We are because we are separate. That kind of idea of group individuality or group isolation setting apart from the other, I hear in that a resonance to that reference that you just made to I think, therefore I am, that notion of individualism as opposed to communalism. Now, when I begin to make those kinds of moves, am I following correctly what you're intending here in talking about Ubuntu or have I missed something? Yes, you're following very well. And I'd, I'd add, not only is apartheid trying to separate human identity, but it's trying to justify that some of us are not quite human, and therefore you can justify the subjugation legally of putting Black people in the lowest category or even caste. Apartheid, in many ways, is a caste system. And so it's also trying to show the hierarchy of the essence of being human. And in apartheid, the, the top echelon of being human is to be white and European. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York, and he's President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. He's the author of 11 books, including Reconciliation, the Ubuntu Theology of Desmond Tutu, focuses his ministry on nonviolence. Today we're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these kinds of conversations and interviews, all available for your listening pleasure for free. Today we're speaking with Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. He's also President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. Today we're talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. Well, before the break, we were talking about the Bantu concept of Ubuntu, the notion that I am because we are. And we were talking about how this concept really shaped the worldview and the theology of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And in your example, you were talking about political divisions and human divisions. But now I want to think about this concept of Ubuntu in light of the third move that you make in your spiritual biography of Desmond Tutu, this idea of the mystical path that leads to union. And when we're talking about this idea of Ubuntu, I am because we are, what I'm seeing in this notion of union, what I understand in your use of this word union, is that it's not just a we that includes other humans, but it's also a we that includes God in some fashion. Now, when I'm making that move, am I getting the move that you're wanting the reader to follow, or would you say this in a different way? No, I think that's right. I think ultimately, going back to Pseudo-Dionysius, the true work of being restored into creation and creation groaning to be complete again is really the restoration between the relationship of the creature and the creator or between God and all that God has created, especially human beings. Yeah, so I think God is an essential aspect of the last stage in Tutu's life. And in many ways, I think for Tutu, he became more ecumenical, more interreligious. For example, the blessing of this forthcoming biography is um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote the foreword. So that's typical of Tutu's later stages in his life. You know, his best friends are the Dalai Lama. And I think the understanding of being one with God is this way of understanding how our diversity, if we do a little archaeology and just go deeper, we will understand that God is already there. There's a oneness that brings our diversity together. And I think when we understand Tutu's relationship of being one with God, trying to show at the end of the book that he becoming an elder is in that wisdom, that African tradition of being more and more mutual with God and that continuum of unity with God is also trying to bring others. And so my claim of Tutu being a saint is not to glorify him necessarily, but just a little duck needs the big mother duck to know what it means to be a duck. When we learn from exemplars in human history, I think we're learning how to grow 
in terms of being one and unity and those concepts is not just idealistic, but we can learn from actual living figures like Tutu that such unity is possible. I'm so excited to hear the connections that you're making and this idea of exemplars, because as you were talking about this notion of Ubuntu, part of what was firing off in my mind was a real tension in the Christian faith. We, in, we inherit verses that say things like, be you holy as your God in heaven is holy. And we can hear in that an echo of something like apartheid, be set apart, be different. But then we have the Pauline language that Christ, even though he was God, didn't treat being God as something to be hoarded, but instead emptied himself and came down into a world of suffering and a world of violence and even endured that violence and death on a cross. I see in that the real tension because we have this set apart idea that some Christian faith traditions really hold on to. But what I'm hearing in what spoke to Archbishop Tutu was instead this notion of he didn't want to be more holy. He wanted to be more Christ-like. And I don't want to overstate that, but being like Christ means going through this notion of purgation, this self-emptying and illumination and union. And it really is a mystical path, isn't it? Because to be conformed to Christ is the hope of the Christian in many ways. And it's not to be different and to be set aside on some kind of holy mountain, but to be in the world in a way that changes the world. So this is what I'm hearing as you're talking about this idea of union and mentorship. But I want to make sure that I'm following the right way. Do I have this right, or would you say this a different way? No, you, you have it right. I think you're pointing to one of the, the old problems that we have between Protestants and Catholics. Sometimes when we use terms like uh, holy, the Protestant side gets a little nervous around that because it seems too much of a category of setting human beings apart from God. And only God is holy. We've learned that from our great Protestant reformers that we're, none of us can save ourselves. We are relying on God ultimately through the revelation of Jesus. And Jesus saves us because of grace. But the Roman Catholics, I think, can teach us, and also the Orthodox can teach us Protestants, that God gives us exemplars. There's a communion of saints that surround us. It's not that any of us are better than the other. It's that some of us are actually loving God. And then look at the results of those who love God. They look like exemplars. And I think that's what we can learn from what they call hagiography. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a whole study of what it means to be holy. And so they use these criteria to determine who's a saint in hagiography. And I think those of us who are Protestant, as an Anglican, I use the term already amphibian, and Anglican is both Roman Catholic and Protestant. So in many ways, that's why I'm seeing the benefit of being both that in this holy and Roman Catholic tradition, we need saints. We need those who are exemplars for us so that we can learn how to be better human beings. It's not that they're any better than us, but they actually give us really good direction to that last stage that we're talking about in the book, being one with God. You've mentioned at several points in the conversation that you yourself had the chance to be up close with Archbishop Desmond Tutu for two years as you were finishing your dissertation. And I'm wondering, since we're talking about mentorship 
and seeing a person pretty much day to day, you get a chance to see both them at their best, but also them at their moments of struggle. And I'm wondering how Tutu was for you as a mentor. And what I mean by that is in the process of being close to him and with him as he was moving towards his own union, how did that shape and change your own view of your faith and maybe your view of your life? This is a really good point that you're making, Dave, because usually when we are around those that we admire so much, we often are let down because we actually existentially come in contact with the humanness, the the weakness of the other. I remember Joan Armitrading was one of my favorite kind of folk singers, a black British singer, said that she never really wanted to meet some of her favorite musicians because then she'd stop listening to their music because she's sure that they would let them down if she got to know them. But if I, you know, if I could just talk a little bit about those years of living with Tutu, it was the opposite. It was more like going, getting to know the musician and that person is making you even more endeared to them. And the music is actually more intelligible and you see the source from which that music comes from. And, you know, for example, when I lived with Archbishop Tutu, he forced me to say my prayers, for example. He, you know, he in the daily office of an Anglican bishop, priest, ordained person, it doesn't have to be ordained or a monk, but you would say morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer. He would do that faithfully every day. And I learned from him that the hardest thing wasn't to get up and say some interview in the midst of South Africa's first real democratic election in 1994 and 1993. Those are the years I lived. But the hardest thing for him was to say his prayers every day. And to me, that's the biggest lesson I learned from someone like Archbishop Tutu that you could only learn by living with him. I love, first of all, your reference of Joan Armitrading, and I think that a lyric of hers really speaks in this conversation. She has a song where she says, kind words and a real good heart doesn't mean you get the best. And I think about that in terms of the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu that you open up for us as readers. We see the moments where he is trying to find the kind words and he is striving to stay with the real good heart in the midst of a world that keeps showing them its worst. (laughs) And as saying, you got a chance to see that up close. You got a chance to see that in in day-to-day living out in its struggle. And I'm touched by the fact that you found yourself deepened in that moment of connection and that you found yourself coming away from that with your saddlebags more full, if I can say it that way, that that you, you weren't depleted by meeting a mentor, but instead you were literally and truly mentored in this process. And is that what a saint is supposed to do? Because you've likened Archbishop Desmond Tutu to a saint. Is that your argument, that when we are close to saints, they will fill us? Or will saints sometimes also demand too much of us? Or will saints give us examples that we can't meet? I I wonder what is the model of sainthood that Desmond Tutu is really matching for you here? Yeah, um, I think it's that understanding that when you are with someone, and even though it's difficult for us as Protestants to say it, that when we are with someone who is holy, we are not just with that person but that person's relationship to God 
becomes infectious and contagious. And it makes us think about our own relationship with God and what barriers that we may be putting up. I do prison ministry, David, and you know, one thing I learned from one of those who was incarcerated about 10 years ago, he said to me, you are who you are when no one is looking. And that stayed with me. This, that person in, who was incarcerated, he taught me that our human identity is oftentimes smoke and mirrors, and we can deceive ourselves in so many ways. And we can try to pretend that we're somebody else when we are who we are, when no one is looking. And so the opposite of that, and I was going to use the fancy term solipsism, which means just to be self-contained and live in an echo chamber. The opposite of that is to be with others who have a life of integrity and who are teaching you and me a life of integrity. They're few and far between those who are self-aware to such an extent that their nonverbal cues are helping us to see our own selves and practices and ways in which we can be healthier. And just to say this last thing, since we're talking about saints, Julian of Norwich, a popular European woman known to be holy, said that the holier she became, the more aware of her evil she became. Meaning that the closer she got to God, the more aware of herself she received. And it's not to say that we are inherently evil or sinful. It's more that that goal of being one with God, unified with God, gives us much more clarity of God, but also clarity of ourselves. And I think when we read those passages in Isaiah um, about being afraid in the presence of God, I think really Julian of Norwich has some deep insight to teach us about that, as well as what I'm trying to say about my life with Archbishop Tutu. I'm struck by that example of Julian of Norwich and finding her own evil as she came closer to her understanding of God. It makes me think of a story uh, that is told of Mr. Rogers, the children's television host and minister, who as he was approaching his own death, he turned, this was reported by his wife, he turned to his wife at one point and was referencing the story about the sheep and the goats. And he asked, am I a sheep? Do you think I'm a sheep? Wow. And what struck me about that in the context of this conversation is as I read the afterword from Archbishop Tutu himself in response to your book, he looked at your claim that he was a saint. And I felt him on the page pull back from that with some hesitancy. And he seemed not ready to claim the term for himself. And I I hear in that kind of the same echo that Rogers was asking when he said, am I a sheep? Am I one of the ones who God will look with favor upon when all of this is over? And so as much as you have been able to, you've really made your case in the almost 500 pages of this book for why you are claiming that Archbishop Desmond Tutu is a saint. But as a person who knows him, maybe I want to know, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, does he buy your argument? Does he think of himself (laughs) that way? Or is he still hesitating? And if so, what do you think he's hesitating for? 
Yeah, I think I expected him to push back from the premise of my biography. If he was actually trying to embrace it, then I think we should have some suspicions. And David, keep in mind that reference point um, of Mr. Rogers, he's referring to Matthew chapter 25. Keep in mind that the sheep didn't know they were holy. They didn't know that they were the ones sitting on the king's right side. They had to ask. And I think that's part of the holiness, that, that humility, that meekness, really, of those who inherit the earth. There's a way of understanding life so that self is not the ultimate priority, which I'm, I grieve in our own Christianity that comes from the European Enlightenment that focuses on personal salvation. I think God is trying to teach us more. Don't worry about that. I got that under control about your salvation. But God is trying to teach us to model the mystery, the miracle of how we are making other people whole, how we are saving other people, and not just to focus on our own ultimate ends. And I think Tutu understood that. And keep in mind, I didn't just come away from Tutu learning how to pray. He ordained me a priest, an Anglican priest. He married, he performed the wedding for my wife, and he baptized all three of our children. He was pivotal in my life. And so he wouldn't be supportive of this biography if he didn't understand the ultimate points that I was trying to make about how the closer we get to God— the natural pull we have on others to bring others to God. What I love about that is I hear in that through and through the Ubuntu philosophy that you're talking about. As one gains union and closeness to God, the goal is not to create a new apartheid, to say we're the holy and you are the outcast, but instead it's to draw others in and to say, as I become more fully connected to God, I want you also to become more fully connected to me and to God. It's such, such a beautiful vision that you are giving us here, and it's clear in this conversation that this is a vision that has been shown to you through decades of association with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I'm very moved by that, and I'm very moved by the book. And I want to thank you for taking time today for speaking with me and my listeners, for for distilling all of the wisdom that you have been able to gain and the reflection upon that wisdom into a 500-page book is already an achievement. But also in this conversation, I think anyone listening to this is, is going to come away, I think, moved by the model that Archbishop Tutu has given us, but also by the model of the deep friendship that he has shown to you. And I just want to say thank you again for your time today. Thank you, David, and, and blessings on your work of reaching out so well to the communities around you and around the world. We've been speaking today with Michael Battle. He's Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. He's also President and CEO of the Peace Battle Institute. He's the author of 11 books, including Reconciliation, the Ubuntu Theology of Desmond Tutu, and he focuses his ministry on nonviolence, Christian reconciliation, human spirituality, and Ubuntu, the African worldview of community. Today, we've been talking about his forthcoming book, Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. 
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. I'm impressed with the Joan Armatrading quote oh, there. Yeah. Both my wife and I are huge <laughs> Joan Armatrading fans. I, I love her to death. So I, when you said that, I beamed. I just lit right up. So. <laughs>